Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Catch Me Up to Speed. I'm Joan. And I'm Ralph. And we're your hosts of this podcast. If you've listened to previous episodes, you'll know that we are two former journalists turned coffee farmers. And our focus is on helping you think critically about the news, especially when narratives are manipulated by those in power. And this episode's example is nothing less than the U.S. presidency. What a surreal space we've been in, right, Ralph? Yeah, surreal is a good word for it, and we are still there. (laughs) So let's recap where we are. On November 7th, enough vote totals came in for the major networks to call it for Biden. Trump rejected this outcome and still hasn't conceded. His administration has not worked with Biden's transition team on a smooth transfer of power. United States Secretary of State Mike Pompeo talked of a second Trump term in a press briefing. U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr told the Department of Justice to investigate, quote-unquote, substantial allegations of voting and vote tabulation irregularities. And Republicans, for the most part, have not pushed back against this narrative of massive voter fraud. So it's no surprise that we were hearing a lot of chatter about an attempted coup. And I got to tell you guys, this one made me really nervous because of what my family's history has taught me about democracy. You see, my parents grew up in the Philippines. They were in Manila during the years of turmoil that led to the Marcos dictatorship. My dad actually got his green card to come to America just as Marcos was declaring martial law. And so based on my parents' stories, I always understood how fragile democracy can be and how much democracy depends on the strength and integrity of a country's institutions. What we were facing immediately after November 7th was the first real test of this country's institutions in my lifetime. Would this narrative of massive voter fraud overcome our institutions, even though there has been no evidence of it? Ralph can tell you that I was very worried for the first half of this week. But then we started to see our institutions hold. Yeah, that's right. You know, two international teams that observe elections, including one that was invited by the Trump administration, well, they both reported that they did not see election irregularities. Then the Trump campaign's lawsuits, well, they're getting tossed out of courts, and even some of the law firms that were hired by the Trump campaign have decided to stop representing them. Sixteen U.S. attorneys tasked with rooting out voter irregularities stated that they found no credible evidence of widespread voter fraud. And the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity Agency put out a statement that included what I'm about to read you right now. Quote, There is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. Now that statement was co-signed by a council that represents state and local elections officials which obviously includes a number of Republicans. Also, all the battleground states have margins for Biden in the tens of thousands. Now, recounts move tallies normally by the hundreds in in terms of ballots. They do not move thousands, let alone tens of thousands of votes. So these results are going to stand. In the end, this election really isn't that close. And finally, other than the presidency, Republicans had a pretty good election. They gained House seats. And there's a strong possibility they're going to keep the Senate under Republican control. Votes for these races and the presidential one were obviously on the same ballots. And you don't hear Republicans alleging massive voter fraud affecting those down ballot races. So, 
So what I really think you have here is a situation where the GOP, their goals are going along with Trump to keep that base of voters energized and tap into that for the future and not necessarily looking to keep him in the White House right now. I think they would if they could, but it's it was always remote and it's more remote by, by the day. He's not going to stay in office, but they still want that energy in those voters going forward. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And, you know, let's also not forget that Trump has other benefits from keeping his quest for the presidency alive. As the Wall Street Journal and other news outlets have pointed out, the fine print in Trump's emails asking for donations to his legal challenges actually have some of that money diverted to other purposes. You've got a significant chunk of that cash going to retiring his campaign debt. You know, the other thing that Ralph and I have been talking about this week is also the media part of this. Uh, And this is in terms of where messaging power may go for Trump and his supporters after his term ends in January. You want to talk about that, Ralph? I do. You know, this is going to be something to watch as newer communications and media efforts grow in the next few years. Interestingly enough, the company that's looking at potential challengers is one that's really dominated their area of the political conversation for a generation. I'm talking about Fox News here. The Trump campaign was very upset when Fox called Arizona for Joe Biden on election night. They felt that that call changed the narrative of the evening and in the minds of the Trump administration was a factor in how the state and the election ultimately played out. Whether that's true or not is a different story. This is how they felt. So lately, Trump has been aiming a fair amount of criticism at Fox from his preferred mode of communication, that, of course, being Twitter. And among his tweets have been those encouraging followers to watch One America News Network, OANN, and also Newsmax. There's also been talk about Trump starting his own news media network, which is something we heard back in 2016 when people thought he might lose to Hillary Clinton and start a news network. Obviously, he won, but now that news network idea is coming back. No matter what, this is definitely a situation to watch going forward because Fox News has pretty much never been challenged as the ultimate voice to conservatives and the Republican Party, but now some of their broadcasting, particularly on the news side of their operation, is being directly challenged by Trump who remains the most popular figure in the Republican Party as it stands today. Now, how Fox responds to this could have a big impact on our media and politics for the next few years. In the meantime, however, it will also have impact on some really big elections that are coming up in the next two months. That's right. And we still have two Georgia Senate races in January, so it makes all the sense for Republicans to go along with Trump's challenge. As it stands right now, The balance is 50 Republicans and 48 Democrats. So the two Senate races in January could bring the chamber to a tie if the Democrats win them both. But we have to point out that this is still a really tall order in Georgia, despite its newfound battleground status. So, Ralph, let's address a question from one of our listeners. Why are we even having two Senate races from the same state at the same time? Because this is really unusual. It is. It is. And here's why both races are at play now. Um, The history behind this is that the Senate seats are arranged in classes. A third of the Senate chamber is up for re-election every election cycle, which is two years. So there's a class one, there's a class two, and there's a class three. 
So every election season, one of the senatorial classes is up for election. This is a class two year. So that Senate seat is up for its normal six-year election. And in Georgia, that's the Senator Purdue versus John Ossoff race. Incidentally, the best-known Georgia Class II senator, and this is me going off on my history tangent here, is a senator named Richard Russell. He served over 30 years. He was in the Senate for a very long time, earlier, earlier part of the 20th century. The Senate office building, one of the Senate office buildings is named after him, the Russell Senate office building. He was the leader of the Southern Bloc during the civil rights era. So when you think about the senator in charge of the filibuster when they were trying to get the 1964 Civil Rights Act through, Richard Russell was leading that filibuster. All right, I, I will get back on topic. <laughs> I was about to rein you in, so I'm glad Sorry. you did that. Okay, so the states, of course, though, determine the rules if a Senate seat is vacated. And Senate seats get vacated for number of, of reasons. It can happen because of a death, like Senator John McCain. Uh, it can happen because that senator is given a political appointment and you have to replace them. Or they can be elected to a higher office. Kamala Harris, for example, is the VP. She will vacate her Senate seat. Someone will have to replace her. Barack Obama back in 2008 when he won the presidency. They can also resign or retire. And that's what happened in this case. Georgia's Class Three Senator, Thad Cochran, resigned in December of 2019. So there was a process in which the state had to decide who was going to take the seat and fill out the rest of his term, so to speak, and they chose Kelly Loeffler. But state law required that an election for the balance of that six-year term be held at the next possible election point, which would be 2020. That is why that seat is up for election now, because they can't appoint a senator for the rest of the term. They can appoint that senator in the interim until the next regular election period. This is why Raphael Warnock and Kelly Loeffler are both competing for the same Class Three Senate seat at the same time that David Perdue and John Ossoff are competing for the Class Two seat, which is for the regular six-year cycle. Whoever wins the Warnock versus Loeffler Senate battle in January will have to face a, another election in 2022 for the full six-year term. The second part about this is that Georgia state law also requires the election winner to get a clear majority of voters. This is when you hear people in the news saying 50% plus one. So the initial vote on election day is open to any party, Libertarian, Progressive, American Independent Party, et cetera. But you have to win a clear majority of all the voters, at least half plus one, to win it outright. If you don't, you go to a runoff. The top two vote-getters go to a runoff. And in both of these Senate elections, they are in runoffs because the highest vote-getter in both of them did not get to 50%. So there's your maybe not-so-short explanation, but see, you learned something there. And this is precisely why we want you guys to email us and uh, <laughs> let us know what you'd like us to address. Uh, and I'll remind you again of that later on in this episode. Now, you know it would not be an episode of Catch Me Up to Speed if we didn't drop in a little more history to go along with the news. And one of the ongoing conversations that Ralph and I have been having is about unified governments. 
So let's take a look at some periods of history when the House, the Senate, and the presidency are all controlled by the same party. And that will give you a very clear sense of why the Democrats and Republicans are fighting fiercely for Georgia's Senate seats in January. So take it away, Ralph. Okay, so why is this important? Well, for any group that wants to see real change, unified government is normally the avenue for this change. I can give you a few examples. In the Reconstruction era, which was dominated by the Republican Party from the end of the Civil War until 1876, you got the 14th and 15th Amendments, which the 14th Amendment dealt with birthright citizenship, equal protection under the law, and the 15th Amendment is the Voting Rights Amendment, of course. You also got two Civil Rights Acts in 1866 and 1875. The New Deal era, which was dominated by Democrats for many years from 1933 when FDR took office until about the 1946 midterms, well, that led to all of the New Deal era acts and decisions, and there are a lot of those that we'll talk about, I'm sure, sometime in future podcasts, because there's a lot to get into there. And the Civil Rights era, which Democrats dominated from 1962 until 1966, especially LBJ's first two years in office, 65 and 66. That's when you got the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, a lot of amendments, Medicare, Medicaid, etc. The what he called, of course, the Great Society. And frankly, you can look at the first two years of the Donald Trump era, led by Republicans from January 2017 until the 2018 midterm elections were certified and those people took their seats in Congress. But in the first two years, the 2017 tax cuts went through. There were two Supreme Court justice nominations, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh. So in modern history, split government and power normally is a recipe for inaction. You know, Mitch McConnell's era as Senate Majority Leader is a prime example of this in recent history. When he was Majority Leader, when Obama was in office the last two years of his second term, not much happened. And you could say the same for the past two years when Democrats had the House of Representatives. Not much happened. And the current tenor in the Senate, of course, is very fractious and very ideological. So if the Republicans retain control of the Senate, Joe Biden's agenda is severely hampered. You know, there's a Vox story that we'll link to in the show notes that explains this well. And I'll read a little bit of it here. Joe, well, he, they're talking about Joe Biden here. So... Mm -hmm. He touted a plan to tackle the COVID-19 pandemic by expanding testing, fostering better coordination between states, and organizing rapid development and deployment of a vaccine. He put forward a program to fight the economic crisis created by COVID-19, including funding for states and localities, cash and unemployment insurance for individuals and households, and grants and loans to small businesses like bars and restaurants. All of that seems fairly doable under unified Democratic control, but much, much harder if Senator Mitch McConnell keeps the Senate. Yeah, even a bare majority, which would be a evenly split 50-50 Senate with Vice President Harris as the tie-breaking vote, even that would allow certain advancements that are financially based due to budget reconciliation rules. And also judicial appointments, which now are no longer under Senate filibuster rules. It also allows control of the floor, which means that bills can be brought to the floor for a vote, 
and that can be useful in messaging. You can force senators to vote for or against bills, for instance, instead of the current atmosphere in which bills are really just not even brought to the floor for consideration at all. And now that we've talked about the minutiae of the the presidential race and also the upcoming Senate races, we wanted to spend some time talking with you about some sweeping observations. Because after all, this is the first election of the 21st century. Yes, yes indeed. Gen Z and millennials combined, they're slightly bigger than the baby boomer block, and they're going to be even bigger than that in 2024. 2020 is the first time Gen Z has been bigger than the silent generation, also known as the greatest generation, in voting eligible numbers. And to give you a sense of how important this is, Tom Bonier, who's the CEO of a political data company called Target Smart, tweeted this out in an update he gave on November 8th. He said, we added two more states to our lists of those with complete turnout data available. All five states reporting thus far saw voters under the age of 30 account for a larger share of the electorate than they did in 2016. It appears that the youth surge did materialize. Yeah, so you can see that this is going to be a voting block that's just going to get more and more important as time goes on. And, you know, right now we're going to hold off on digging into the demographics of this youth vote until we have, you know, more full data. But this much is clear. Conditions are ripe for a really engaged electorate over the 21st century. Many of the first-time voters in 2024, for example, will be used to marching. These are the kids who attended the Women's March in 2017 with their parents, or maybe they took part in the March for Our Lives, or maybe they attended a youth climate strike or joined a BLM protest after the killing of George Floyd. And even if they were opposed to these actions and they didn't hit the streets— These are kids who are aware of them. And simply put, compared to Gen Xers like Ralph and myself, these kids are a lot more politically motivated than we were at that age. Yeah, definitely so. Definitely so. Another thing to think about. Remember point number four from our first episode? We said no binary thinking. That it's not as simple as liberal versus conservative or Democrat versus Republican. Well, take a look at the landscape right now. You're seeing a major break happen within both parties. There are progressives against centrists on the Democratic side, Trumpists versus centrist Republicans on the Republican side. There's discussions about where does the party of Lincoln go, or is it the party of Trump, and what does that battle look like? Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to get into a lot more detail about that later on, because a lot of that is still evolving. But... You know, it is the emerging electorate who is going to determine the party's overall politics long term. We're going to start to see this effect from 2024 onward. Yeah. Another thing we want to update more when we get into the data as it comes in is the black vote, which, of course, we talked about in our last uh, episode. More black men and women, they, they voted in slightly greater numbers for Trump. And we won't quote the exact numbers until we see the finals, but that's a pretty established trend right now. However, there were enough votes counted, actually counted, to compare areas where the black vote was decisive in the 2020 election. You know, turnout in the Detroit area was key to Michigan. Milwaukee, of course, was key to Wisconsin. Philly and Atlanta were key to Pennsylvania and Georgia, respectively. Democrats got 28,000 more votes in Milwaukee this year than they got in 2016. 
And remember, we discussed earlier, Hillary Clinton lost Wisconsin in 2016 by about 20,000 votes. So that makes a huge difference. There's a similar story in Detroit, and quite frankly, Georgia's turnout model is a story in itself. Yes, there are lots of sound bites crediting Stacey Abrams with registering more than 800,000 new voters in Georgia after November 2018. In other words, after she lost her election for governor. As Abrams told NPR, 45% of those new voters are under the age of 30, and 49% are people of color. So she's really bringing in a new base um, that has not been traditionally represented, right? But this isn't a story of just the last two years. As Abrams points out, this is the result of at least a decade's worth of work. In addition to Fair Fight Action, the organization that she founded, you've got Ense Ufot, who's the CEO of the New Georgia Project, Tamika Atkins of Pro-Georgia, Deborah Scott of Georgia Stand Up, Helen Butler of the Georgia Coalition of the People's Agenda, Rebecca DeHart, the CEO of Fair Count. You've got Asian Americans Advancing Justice in Atlanta, Galeo, the Georgia Association of Latino Elected Officials, Black Voters Matter, the late Congressman John Lewis, Mm -hmm. and of course, the Georgia Democratic Party. This is a broad base of organizations and parties who are working together to, to grow this vote. It really shows you what the work on the ground and engaging people can do. And, and speaking of that, we also want to talk a bit about the Latino vote because, you know, the national super PACs that supported Democrats spent about a billion dollars on turnout and mostly spent that money on turning out suburban white voters. These same money groups spent about $25 million on outreach and turnout of the Latinx vote. And I am, of course, not a sage in the Latino vote. I got this from uh, Chuck Rocha, who had said it on on TV. And Chuck Rocha was one of the senior advisors for the Bernie Sanders campaign in the primary. And he has his own PAC. It's called Nuestro PAC. Really smart guy, knows a lot about Latino outreach. seen him and followed him for a couple months now. He's been on plenty of cable TV shows. He's had interviews. He was on internet news outlets like Rising, which is done on the Hill. And he talked about this disparity in outreach to the Latino community and how that's going to be key coming up in future years. It's really interesting stuff and really talks about how to get to different communities. Yeah, that's right. Um, And actually, you know, Yahoo News did a profile of Chuck Rocha when he was working for Bernie Sanders' campaign. So we'll link to this in the show notes, but wanted to give you some highlights. For example, Rocha insisted upon having Latinos in senior management in every department of the headquarters and in every state. So there weren't these separate Latino departments. They were fully integrated uh, into uh, the bigger offices. And these staffers, they didn't just do messaging. They also helped shape policy. And when they did shape policy and they got to the messaging, their ads were very customized. For example, ads that were targeted at Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans have slightly different scripts. And some ads that were aimed at Latinos were not in Spanish at all. In particular, on Spotify, where they targeted young Latinos, many ads were entirely in English. So any party that adopts these strategies will be on solid footing to court the Latinx vote in the future. We also have some news about the Asian American vote that is nothing short of remarkable. 
Remember Tom Bonnier of Target Smart? In a Medium post called The Unheralded Voting Block of 2020, he pointed to an unprecedented surge in voting by Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, also known as AAPIs. Now, as someone who was a member of this demographic, I'm personally delighted to see this, because traditionally, we've had very low voter participation. We'll dig into the data after more of it comes out, because Bonnier's preliminary analysis suggests that AAPIs had a significant role in Joe Biden's win. This much is clear. Compared to 2016, AAPI turnout jumped in every battleground state, and more so than any other ethnic or racial group. Bonnier offers several reasons for this. Kamala Harris was the first AAPI vice presidential candidate. We saw a lot of solidarity between AAPIs and black Americans after the killing of George Floyd. And we can't discount the effect of racist rhetoric tying us to the coronavirus. Check out the website stopaapihate.org. Its latest report points out that Republican politicians reposted tweets with racist or stigmatizing language towards AAPIs more than 1.3 million times. And this is just in the months leading up to the election. And finally, do you remember tip number two from our first episode in which we told you to consider the source of your news? We hinted at the importance of reading international news, but now we're going to give you a resource for this. Because right now is a logical time to check out what other countries are saying about America. We'll drop a link to the annual Reuters Institute Digital News Report into the show notes. This report ranks the leading news organizations in a number of countries. It studies which news outlets are viewed, listened to, or read the most every week. And it also lists which ones are trusted the most. So this is not like the Ad Fontes media bias chart that we talked about in episode one. There's no bell curve here that tries to tell us which sources are neutral or which ones have a right or a left slant. But the Reuters report tells you which organizations have the biggest megaphones in each of the countries that it studies. So hang on to this report and start checking it out because we're going to refer to it in future episodes. At the moment, much of the reaction falls along expected lines. We've got European allies who were relieved by Biden's win. Canada's Justin Trudeau was among the first to congratulate Biden, which makes total sense given how intertwined Canada's economy is with that of the United States. And honestly, Ralph and I have been joking that Justin Trudeau had that number on speed dial just to get in front of everyone else, Colin. Yeah. <laughs> I was saying Biden. he probably had his finger over the, the, the send <laughs> button, like, call it, call it, bang. <laughs> I got to be first. Right. <laughs> And, of course, then you have, uh, obviously, leaders of uh, President Xi of China who waited a long time to congratulate Biden. um, And Russian President Putin has not yet congratulated him. Um, (laughs) And, you know, Bolsonaro of Brazil had a signature reaction to the U.S. election. Yes, this was classic Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro. So on Tuesday, he had a press conference. He did not congratulate Joe Biden as president-elect, but he did make a statement warning Joe Biden that he would respond to the U.S. with, quote, gunpowder and not just saliva if Washington decided to impose economic sanctions on Brazil over the deforestation going on in the Amazon. And Biden, of course, has previously warned that Brazil might face economic consequences if it fails to tackle the issue. So this is what you would expect from Jair Bolsonaro. 
right on brand. Maybe he won't get a congratulations. I'm going to put my money on no, but there you go. That That's part of the international ration you need to know about. So that's your kicker, and that's it for today's show. Remember, we want to take your questions, so drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com. Tell us something like, hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on X, Y, or Z? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms. As always, thanks for spending time with us today, and talk to you again soon.